Welcome to True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Welcome to True Crime IRL. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is part five, our final installment of my crossover series with Bob Mata and Darren Wood from The Defense Diaries, where we discussed in depth the case of Anthony Garcia, serial killer, if you want to paint him with that brush, from the Omaha, Nebraska area. Garcia was convicted of murdering four people, all with ties to Creighton University, over a five-year period. If you haven't listened to the previous four parts yet, go back and do that first. In this, our final part of our series, we wrap up the trial, the sentencing, and life after the trial ended. We also discuss a few interesting topics and dive down some completely unrelated rabbit holes as usual. Let's take a quick moment to hear from our sponsors and we'll get right into part five of the crossover with True Crime IRL and The Defense Diaries. Basically, where we're at is kind of, you know, the way a trial works is you have all the motion work that takes place, like kind of... After you get the discovery, after the discovery is tendered by the state over to us, which in this case, as you've heard, you know, we developed another case that we had to investigate entirely along with the two cases that we were defending our client on. So, you know, we filed all the appropriate motions, motions to suppress statements, you know, all kinds of stuff, tons and tons of motions. So all those went to hearings and it took forever. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it just took a really, really long time. Years. Years. And and during the course of that, we had challenged our client's competency twice and the court had agreed twice. So he had gone to... Um, they agreed that he wasn't competent correct. either. Yeah, they, they agreed that he was not competent and they sent him to, I think it was called Lincoln Regional, okay. which was a mental hospital in Lincoln. And, you know, so that delayed things, of course. And then because when that happens, what's the process there? You're basically as his lawyer just on hold until he's deemed competent again. Right. And so yeah. that could be what months, could a year. Years. Could be... So what do you do then? Pack up and go back to Chicago? Yeah. And just wait. Exactly. Is there a timeline of when they would finally just dismiss it or something like that? Or would it just pick up two years later wherever you left off or something? No, in theory, they could have kept him in there for 50 years. You know, if they would have never have deemed him competent, like he wouldn't have walked. But one, would, let's say in three years, there he's competent. Then we stand trial. <laughs> like then, then it goes to trial. Like as soon as he's cured or, right. you know, as soon as he becomes competent, as soon as they make him competent, mm-hmm. you're, you're back on. Yeah, that back. happened in the Ronald Exantis case that I was telling you about. He was totally psychotic. I mean, he had a lot of problems. He was in that situation for a long time. And then finally, I think it was like a year later, maybe. I can't remember, but they, he was suddenly competent to stand trial and they moved forward. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's that's how it works. And it's obviously tough on our client, but it's tough on us as well. Oh you know, my gosh. And, I, your life is also being put on hold basically totally. and your career and your business and right. you're doing this one thing and it's a and waiting the, game. And the end result of that is that it gives the state more time to continue to try to pile on shit. You know, there, cause like I said, you know, in, in criminal cases, like I don't know if there's an assumption by people out there that like when somebody's arrested that the investigation stops because that is not the case. Like in Garcia, they were investigating up until like the day of trial. Wow. You know, okay. still trying to gain evidence because they knew it was a tenuous case. It was circumstantial. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, they had no real proof that it was him in either of those houses. Right. You know, they just had a bunch of things. Which, you know, obviously, as you, you've heard them, you know, they were compelling enough for you to think that he did it, you know, so. But you're starting to make me at least rethink things a little bit, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, there's, there was just, it's, it's like a ton to unpack, you know, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot there and it was really a fascinating case and it like. We don't have enough hours in the day, um, and you probably don't want to be putting out 15 episodes on Garcia. So, you know, I'm trying to really give you the 
truncated version, the abbreviated version of what went on at the trial, but it was, I'm talking serious rabbit holes. Like I would have like every case I've ever heard of. And obviously, you know, I was involved in it. So I, I intimately know the details, but you know, I can look at any case, you know, and there's been a lot of fascinating cases, like from the legal side of it out there, but just none that kind of match what went on in that trial. And it, it was yeah. like, it, it was kind of never ending, you know, so, it just was. Yeah. One of those rabbit holes, and I don't know if we're ready to go down it yet or not, but was the theory that maybe with um, Thomas Hunter's murder and Shirley Sherman's murder, well, there were just a lot of theories about who did it. Was it more than one person? Was it, you know, someone who could it have been? So what what did you find when you looked into that? So kind of the first thing that, that we had, you know, when we had talked about the, the Blanchard thing, you know, when we had talked about, you know, that there, there seemed to be a connection, um, between the Blanchard killing and the Hunter killing in the, in the sense that the knives are left in the neck. Right. Which is extremely similar MO. You know, so we started digging into that and then we fought to get the file and right, we right. got the investigation file and it was under seal. And, and and part of that under seal portion kind of leads to like one of the bigger developments in the case. And that's like, we're probably, I think, a month out from trial when my wife Allison, after they had arrested Simmer for the uh, for the, the murder of Joy Blanchard, after we had filed noticed that we were going to be using Simmer as a suspect in our case for the Hunter murders. They finally decide to arrest that guy after nine years, like the day after we gave them notice that we were going to be using that guy uh, as one of our primary thrusts of our defense. That mm-hmm. It wasn't Garcia, it was this guy. Right. So as part of that, and, and, you know, so we started sending DNA samples because they had found samples at the Hunter house. They had a couple that were foreign samples and they ended up finding that there was a stronger match with Charlie Simmer mm-hmm. than there was with Garcia and Butra's doorknob. Yeah. Like it, so it was a stronger match, not a great match. Like, don't get me wrong. This wasn't like, it was definitely Charlie Simmer in there, <laughs> but it was a stronger, much stronger sample than they had that they were presenting at trial or that they were going to present at trial than, you know, than they had against Garcia. Right. So, it so was, yeah. How did you go through that whole DNA process? Like, tell me about, about that, because that really interests me. And I talk about DNA evidence and in a lot of my other cases. And so tell me about that. So like initially there was no DNA evidence of the Hunter thing because they had found at least as to Garcia, because, you know, like I said, they had a couple of samples that they found, but they were not like a match to Garcia. Like he was excluded from mm-hmm. both of the samples. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately when we discover the, the simmer thing and the Joy Blanchard thing, we sent all of that information over to our expert, Carl Reich, who is a DNA expert, brilliant guy. So he ends up running the DNA for us and comes back that there was a stronger, that the, the one of the samples at the Hunter scene was a closer, stronger match to Charlie Simmer, the guy that they have now arrested that murdered Troy Blanchard and who ultimately was convicted of that, by the way. Um, you know, that, that, that sample was stronger than the, again, the match that they had for, for Garcia and Butcher. So that was our, that was our thing. It's like, okay, both of the samples kind of stink, but our sample, which stinks, stinks a lot less than the sample that you're trying to, to pin our guy, because that was such an important part of their narrative. You know, like their whole running narrative was that we had the tablet, we have the search for Butra on the tablet. Now we have his DNA at Butra's house. Butra was at a brunch. He couldn't kill her because she wasn't there. He then audibles and then he goes over and kills the Brombachs at 4.30 in the afternoon. So like us being able to establish that that DNA was bullshit would have really destroyed kind of that part of the narrative. So, But you didn't get to do that. We did not. So in response to us providing our our experts sample. And again, this is what I'm talking about, kind of the delays, how that gives the state more time. They sniff out some company called True Allele, which mm-hmm. is a company that had developed a new algorithm in terms of saying that they had a way that they could analyze DNA that would come back. It was way more foolproof, you know, that it was way more accurate than any anything that they're currently using in terms of determining 
matches and DNAs. So they, they come back and they one day out of the blue, they produce this report that says that Garcia was like a one in three billion match, which means it's him. It was a hundred percent him. So it goes from a one in 12, which is like, you know, one out of the 12 jurors right, right. would have matched mm-hmm. as opposed to like, it's the only guy on the planet that could basically produce right. that DNA. Like, this is literally your guy. Right. right so here. we're like, what the hell? <laughs> Where did this come from? Who is this guy? So we, we immediately contact our DNA guy. We're like, Carl, have you ever heard of this? He's like, Oh, I thought, you know, I think I read an article about it. <laughs> so we of course file a motion immediately to exclude that, you know, because part of the thing about like any kind of science, new science you know, and if they develop a new kind of um, system in terms of analyzing DNA, that's really considered new science. Even though DNA is now accepted mm-hmm. in, in criminal cases, you know, if they come up with a new way to analyze it, that's not been accepted. So we as attorneys have the opportunity to vet that science to make sure it's not what they call junk science. Like right. It's just not some bullshit. Right. So we then file the motion. We argue that we have to have the opportunity to have a Daubert hearing, which is like this um, case that came out, you know, 20 plus years ago, which is kind of the case that allowed for DNA to start getting used in courts. So at that point, what happens is the guy who owns the True Allele company says, I'm not giving up my science. I'm not giving up my algorithm so that your expert can, you know, use it to vet my, my system because then my trademark or my patent's worth nothing. Right. You know what I mean? I so, get that too. Yeah. But, yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, I kind of do, but like he's, unless he kind of caves on that, yeah. he's never going to be able to use it because somebody true. has to be able to vet it. Mm-hmm. Like you just can't come you in You can't and just say, make this up and like, here's my new science and it's right. going to solve everything. Yeah. No. Yeah. Here's my magic machine. Right. Just push a button. It's and it, witchcraft. It, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it pumps out whatever result you need it to pump out. Right. Because that's the way it seemed. Uh-huh. So. The judge actually agrees with us on that, but it was like, uh, it, it, it was like a, a loss really because what he ended up saying is that I'm going to exclude the true allele guy, mm-hmm. like meaning that they can't put the one in three billion, but I'm not going to allow your expert to come on and testify that your guy is excluded as leaving the contribute uh, the, you know, the contributing DNA on the doorknob at Butra's house, mm-hmm. so which our, our expert had found. Like right. He, he had found, he said yeah. that th- that was not Anthony Garcia's DNA. It just was not. And he was going to testify to that. He said, and the judge said, well, if you do decide, I'm not going to completely handcuff you. Mm-hmm. You can do it. You, you can in, have your, your, your guy introduce yeah. that. But if you do, I'm going to allow the true, the, the true allele right. guy to fucking testify. And I was like, Oh my God. You can't do that. So yeah, like we, we called that the nuclear option, but that would have been such a huge part of our case because it would have completely undermined their narrative in terms of like that beautiful little story where mm-hmm. he comes in, you know, we've got the tablet. He goes to Boutra's. Boutra's not there. You know what I mean? It's right. like it would have taken a huge part of their narrative out. So that was like a, you know, like a, just a no-win situation for us. Mm-hmm. And it was something that even till the last day of trial, we were like, do we employ the nuclear option? Do we just drop the bomb? I mean, do we do we need it? Because we're trying to analyze like where we're at in our case. Like, right. have we convinced this jury that they have not met their burden? Like, mm-hmm. have we created enough reasonable doubt? You know, you never know. Like, we're sitting there, we're thinking... I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, are these, unless these people are just oblivious to everything we're saying, unless they're so locked in that this guy did it, that they're just not listening to anything we're right. saying, they're going to just ignore all the evidence. Mm-hmm. But you didn't choose to go that route. We didn't. We ultimately did not because we felt like we had put enough science and credible witnesses on there to rebut everything that they had, you know, and it would, it would like nothing was like speculative. It wasn't like it would, you had to stretch. It was like everything they produced. We had an expert that would basically rebut them and and not only rebut them, but rebut them with great confidence and, you know, supported by facts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going into the ending days of trial, when we were kind of presented with that, that horrible choice of, do we put our guy, because we flew him back out, like he had testified and then we flew him back in because we had kind of decided that we were going to drop the nuclear bomb mm-hmm. and just put them on and we were going to, you know, throw all caution to the wind and say, we've got to do it, you know, but ultimately we backed off on it. But, you know, part of the narrative of that with the DNA battle and with the simmer thing where we introduced this new suspect right. 
was that um, Allison had, and I remember we had flown, uh, we had flown home and we were outside of like a jump sky high trampoline park. Mm-hmm. Well, like we had brought our kids there and she was um, doing a Skype with one of the local Omaha news networks. And she basically went on to say that um, based on our, our DNA evidence that our DNA expert had come up with in terms of him testing the DNA that Charlie Simmer was a stronger suspect in Hunter and that we fully expected uh, the state to exonerate Anthony Garcia. Mm-hmm. So the state became enraged by this, like, mm-hmm. and they, they immediately filed a motion for sanctions against Allison and what ends up happening. And then they, and they hated Allison. Like they hated her because she was a strong woman. Mm-hmm. Um, like first and foremost, like the, like the vibe that, they wanted her removed because of her being a female attorney and a very strong willed female attorney. It was very real in that wow. case. That's, uh, yeah, that's it's, it's scary. a real, it's a real thing, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, um, so because ultimately what they ended up doing is they file the motion, they go in and argue that she had tainted the jury pool right. so horrifically by making that statement when in reality for three years, the state had been making comments, had been doing fireside chats in the paper, everything talking about how our guy was guilty. They yeah. tried our client completely in the press. And there's this rule called the safe harbor rule where it basically says, because like the, the general proposition when you're talking about publicity and trials is that neither side's really supposed to be out there spotting off. Right. No. Know? So and. And if it turns out that that the state has gone out there and spouted off the safe harbor rule says that we can say so much as to even the playing field again. So that was really all we felt we were doing, you know, Mm -hmm. that they had they had tried our guy for three years in the Omaha world for three years, like just skewered this guy. Trial by media. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, so. She goes in and, you know, she does this Skype and, and it was all based on valid evidence. It wasn't like we were just making shit up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we go in front of the judge on the, the motion for sanctions and we filed competing sanctions against, uh, Don Klein to get him removed because he had been doing all kinds of like nefarious types of things like with respect to, and it, there's just so much, like we haven't even talked about the stripper. And we haven't talked about so many there's things. There's so yet. many things with this case. And I, I keep it, wanting to it's never jump ahead. It's, I can't. I know it's never ending. And, and like, we're like, there's just, there's just so much. Um, Good thing you're going to do a whole season about this right. pretty soon. I mean, yeah, cause there's a lot and it's, it's really an unbelievable case. It, Sounds like it. Yeah. It's crazy. So, so ultimately what the judge rules is that he is uh, terminating Allison's ability to practice law in Nebraska. So therefore, just for then or ever for, for then, but she, you know, she was kicked off the case, which in a death penalty case was absolutely unheard of. Oh, really? Maybe the first time in like American jurisprudence were a case of like that magnitude for that type of, perceived uh, indiscretion. He's removing and violating our client's Sixth Amendment right to counsel of his choice Mm -hmm. by removing her from, you know, so they they ended up winning. The state wanted nothing more than to get Allison off. This was the, this was the second time they had tried to get her off the first time for the stripper thing that I was telling you about. Which everyone wants to hear now that you've mentioned it twice. Right. So the long and the short of that is that there was a stripper that our client the state had dug up who had claimed that our client had said to her at some point when he was making like relationship advances to her because he had frequented the strip club a lot. And he thought that, you know, he'd like to have an actual relationship with her. You know, and she says, well, I'm not, you know, you're too nice of a guy. I'm really into bad boys. And he said, she claims that he said something to the effect that, you know, I'm not, I'm not as good of a boy as you think I am. I, I actually, you know, I, I killed an old lady and a young boy. And, you know, of course she didn't make that statement to anybody, didn't tell anybody that that had happened or that Anthony Garcia, Dr. Tony had said that until right after he's arrested. The so, timing was suspect it was there. Definitely suspect. So they end up, um, Allison ends up calling 
Cecilia Hoffman, who was the, the, uh, the dancer and, you know, has a long hour and a half conversation, which took place in the evening in our home. And I was like, you know, Allison does what she does. She's pacing around the island, having this conversation with this woman. And it was a mother to mother thing. Like Cecilia had a kid, a young kid. And Allison obviously has kids. And, you know, Cecilia's like, I, you know, there's no part of me that wants to go up there and sit on the stand and have this part of my life torn apart and exposed for the, you know, the world. And, you know, and moreover, you know, I was, I was hooked on meth back then when I was stripping, wow. I was yeah. drinking constantly. I wouldn't trust anything. She basically recants. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so as a part and parcel of that, at the end of the conversation, Allison's like, well, we really need an affidavit from you, like that you're basically recanting your statement so that we can tender that. Mm-hmm. And what we end up doing is we send our private investigator, Steve Yonke, down there to go get an affidavit from mm-hmm. her interviewer. So he shows up, hands her a business card. I don't know if she looked at it or didn't look at it. Um, I think she looks at it and, you know, it just has his info on it. Like halfway through the end, and it's a very pleasant interview. You know, it's like he taped it all. So we had it fortunately on tape and, you know, it goes on for about an hour. And then she realizes, she's like, are you... Are you here on behalf of the Matas? You know, she realizes that we're here, you know, that we had sent her from the Garcia team. Mm -hmm. And she like proceeds kind of like work to terminate the the interview. She's like, her tune changes very quickly. And because we find out in the interim that she had, after she had talked to Alice and she then talked to the state and then they told her to go to the Indiana State Police and make a statement saying that Allison had harassed and intimidated her. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, that conversation was not taped. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, w- I was standing there and there was nothing even remotely. Yeah. <laughs> this was not, you know, this was right. uh, Allison's pretty, pretty by the book. Um, so at that point, you know, they file a motion for sanctions against Allison saying that she had harassed and intimidated a witness, which, of mm-hmm. course, sullies her in the eyes of everyone. Right. You know, it, it, like, they already kind of had it out for her. Well, they totally had it out for her. She was, like, like yeah. said, she was papering them to death. Like, mm-hmm. she was, like, she was really fighting the case, and they didn't like having to do the actual work. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, like, it was too much. Like, right. there was enough to do in the case without having to fight all these motions, and they wanted her out. Yeah. They wanted her out. She was a very strong-willed pit bull of a lawyer, mm-hmm. and she was a woman, mm-hmm. and they, they didn't want her in. You know, they yeah. did not want her in. That was an old boys' network out right. there in Omaha. Oh, it was a whole sure. different thing. Yeah. So um, they end up... Uh, so th- that motion really goes nowhere, and it sits there. And I was so infuriated by it because it, it led such... It, it, it left such a, a bad taste in my mouth because of the impression that it gave of who Allison was an atter- as an mm-hmm. attorney in the sense that, it, you know... It's a horrific thing to to say about an attorney that they're out there harassing and intimidating right. witnesses. That's their livelihood, it's a, it's a, it, yeah. right? It's their livelihood, and it, it puts a cloud, a stain on their reputation. Mm-hmm. And it was a lie. It was a right. flat out lie. Yeah, you know, all done because they had this like unrelenting drive to convict this guy. It was mm-hmm. it's really it was crazy. So, um, so that takes place like a few months before. You know, this hearing where he's going to remove Allison and, and he does. So he strips one of the, and when we're talking, we're like a month, a month out from trial, like in this huge trial to take away my trial partner, you know, like Allison, we were co lead counsel. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad was second chairing and we had local counsel, um, who wasn't really doing shit. So So that's a major curveball thrown at you. What do you, what do you do then? And it was, and then it, it just, kept getting worse. So after he removes Allison for this, for this, you know, uh, out of court statement that she made that they, they deemed was so horrific that it had tainted the jury pool. Our, our local counsel then turns around and stabs us in the back, Dan Stockman and says, Oh, well, you know, I, I'm going to withdraw. I, I feel like it's, it's going to like all the things that are going on with this case that it's going to negatively, uh, you know, affect my ability to practice law in this county. Wow. And I, I just can't stay on with them. So, so people are dropping like flies. They're dropping like <laughs> flies, which means we've now lost our local counsel, which means if we don't have local counsel, not only has Allison been kicked off the case, we have now been effectively rendered moot right. and unable to practice law because we don't have local counsel right. sponsoring right, us. Right. So essentially he's been left with no attorney. Yeah. So yeah, I was going to say, what does that do for your client that he's being abandoned basically by 
the court, the court, uh, yeah, yeah, forced, forced abandonment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we end up like, like that, like walking out of that hearing, this guy named Jeremy Jorgensen, who's a, who was a an attorney in Omaha, like follows us out and he's like, Hey, you know, I'll be your local counsel. So this guy, wow, you know, so yeah, it turned, it turned out to be a blessing and a curse. Um, and so, you know, we immediately, we walk over to his office and we start trying to negotiate a deal with him and his partners. And, you know, he actually, he was, he was a, a really bright guy. Um, and so, and, and we decided because Allison was removed that we actually needed a, a third experienced attorney that was going to actually work and try the case with us. So, and he was a relatively experienced trial lawyer. So we took him on. And I mean, there's a whole nother podcast about Jorgensen though. And like, <laughs> what? A, just about this attorney? About this attorney. It's cr- oh. crazy. Um, oh, wow. yeah, it's, it's crazy. So anything you can say on. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you off here. Okay. It's, it's a crazy story. So, um, ultimately, you know, my father and I are allowed to stay on. Allison mm-hmm. has now been removed from the case. We then file what they call an interlocutory appeal. And basically that's an appeal that is filed during the case itself. Like typically you think of appeals being filed after the case, an interlocutory appeal. And we were filing an interlocutory appeal because it was a constitutional challenge because we were saying that our client's Sixth Amendment right to his choice of counsel was violated. Yes. Like, and we could not proceed with the trial. Right. As soon as I said those words, because our client had been pushing us to get to trial. He's like, they're torturing me. They're torturing me. I can't have any more delays. I just need this to go to trial. I need it to be over with. So, you know, we had gone to him and we said, look, you know, we understand. I said, but this is your life at stake. Like, you know, you have to weigh. I mean, it's been at this point, two and a half going on three years we've got to you know mm-hmm. we've got to file this appeal he's like, i don't i don't think i want you to file it like we have to move on without Allison. i'm like i'm like man she's our like dna expert she's like she's the one who knows and understands that science who's going to be able to test you know get the get the testimony right. elicited from our experts because she really has her mind you know working in in tune with those with those guys that are handling the dna side i mean it's like a huge loss for us mm-hmm. you know so ultimately um, you know, strategically lawyers get to kind of make the choices. That's not like kind of in the purview of the client. Like mm-hmm. we have to do what's in the best interest legally based strategically on what we think. Right. It's not a choice that the defendant has. The, the defendant doesn't get to make those choices. They get three choices and the strategy involved in a case is not one of them. It's like, right. do you want to plead guilty or not guilty? Do you want to take the stand to testify? And do you want a, a bench or a jury trial? Those are the three things defendants have an absolute unequivocal right to choose mm-hmm. like that the lawyer has no say so in it i mean they could advise them obviously but they can't make the choice right right the appeal thing was not that and we believed it was in his best interest so we filed the interlocutory appeal the day that i went in and i was so i remember being so nervous about going in to tell him that we had filed this appeal because it meant a delay because mm-hmm. it goes, the, the interlocutory appeal went right to the Supreme Court of Nebraska, you know, for them to decide whether she should be reinstated in the case. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember when the words came out of my mouth, it was like a robot, like being like if it was plugged in, just like completely uh-huh, like shutting just, down. Yeah. And it like, was in like he never came back. Oh, in that moment, like that's that, when he that changed. exact yeah. moment, like he never said another word to us. Wow. For the, like the next six months. Wow. Didn't, didn't say a word to us during the entire trial. So when we see pictures of him slumped over in a wheelchair, basically this is kind of the moment where that all started. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent for sure. Yeah. You know, I think it was exacerbated by other things, but yeah. that, like that, I don't know if it crushed his spirit. I don't know what it did, but I yeah. mean, it, it was like, you know, I'm a pretty, <laughs> convincing guy you know i was like I, I i would talk to him and he would sit there and not respond and i'd be like look it's like tony I, I get that you're upset i understand it i know this has gone on far too long i i get it i was like but you know this approach that you're doing right now this thing where you've decided to shut it down is only going to hurt you more i mean it's mm-hmm. like you know we need you to participate with us and trying to defend your case and I no mean, response to nothing that. nothing like he never said another word to us like honestly and, and so it was like, how do you even proceed? We don't like we try, you know, so for the third time, as it was leading up to trial, I once again filed 
emotion, challenging our client, our client's competence. Because mm-hmm. at this point, he wasn't speaking to us. Yeah, that seems he, pretty cut and dry. I mean, yeah. and it wasn't like, you know, but the court was like, it's a ruse. You know, it's like this guy's playing a game. And I'm like, they've got him 23 hours a day in a cell. There's yeah. nothing phony about that. Like, no. that was like, do you remember I read you that little blip from uh, like a new, I read it to you yesterday. It was like me talking about I'd challenge any one of you to spend 23 hours a yeah. day in a cell for three years and see how you come out the other side of it. It wouldn't be good. You know, to see it, dude, it's, it, it's, it's cruel and unusual it's punishment. Kind of. Un- it's not kind of. I mean, it's 100%. yeah. 100%. So, you know, so she's kicked off the case and the thing ends up going, you know, we go to trial and we try, try the damn case. And it, you know, the case last five weeks, took a month, to pick a jury. You know, we put on, an amazing defense, mm-hmm. you know, the state put on their case and, you know, ultimately, you know, they came back. They, they, I want to say they deliberated, um, for about 14 hours. For, is that a long time? Yeah. The- I mean, for, I mean, I've had deliberations go like days, you know, I would have thought that this would have been like going into it after my closing argument. I thought that I had it. Mm-hmm. Like I walked out of that courtroom thinking that I had won that thing despite my client's appearance. We had put on an, a, like a, an amazing defense for this guy, you know, mm-hmm. and like we had, I thought we had answered every challenge that we had in terms of, you know, this, this somewhat damning, like the damning circumstantial evidence that he had. Like we just, we had an answer for everything, mm-hmm. you know, and like I just never forget that they never asked, like they never knew and we had no obligation and I couldn't put my client on like just because he was not in any state to put him on. He like, what would be the point? He's well, not going to answer. Right. Anything. He just like, and he would, it would be like, I would have had no idea what he would have said. It would have been a nightmare. There was not an option for us. No. So, you know, it's like, I, I have this situation where I, I'm just like, I walk, I really did. I walked out thinking that we had nailed it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, despite his, you know, everything that was going on with him that we just had like nailed it. We, we, like everything mm-hmm. we rebutted everything that they had and but but you know they came back found him guilty mm-hmm. and uh you know i was stunned and, and you know the the most telling thing was is like is like kind of how it goes with like when you have a jury out deliberating it's like you know we left and we knew that it wasn't going to come back the first day because like our closing arguments took up you know, like maybe till like two in the afternoon, like the full last day was closing arguments and mine was very long. And, you know, so we ended up leaving. We went to, you know, like a bar to have a, like a drink and mm-hmm. kind of wind down and, yeah. you know, congratulate each other because it was a hard fought case and yeah. we worked really, really hard to, to provide a, a good defense for our client. And mm-hmm. we did. So, you know, so the first night passes and, you know, the second day and we're getting late into the afternoon and then, you know, so we, we get called back in we say the jury's got a verdict and they call us back in and say, you have a half an hour to get back here. So we all gather back all the press, you know, the entire yeah. room, you know, yeah, everybody fills up yep. and like, you know, we're sitting there and I can see, I, I look over at the state table and I can just see, you know, how nervous they are. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, they, they knew like we put on, like they, this wasn't, they just weren't sitting there with their their arms full no. looking, you know, they like, knew you fought hard and they knew, and yeah. they, they knew it was, they knew it was up in the air, right? you know, they knew it was that close, you know, despite all of the things that they had done. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so now they, they came back and found them guilty on all counts. And, you know, I mean, I was like, it's, it's hard to describe that feeling, you know, when you lose something like that. I can't and, imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, it's your client's life, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I was like, wasn't just like losing a case. It's right. like your client is, is more likely to, than not going to, you know, be executed. Yeah. You know, so it was, it was a very, um, it was a tough day. Mm-hmm. It was a tough yeah. day. Where is he now? What happened after that? Were there appeals? Were there like, I don't know how all that works. So not yet. I mean, there should have been in, in Nebraska. So we ended up leaving the case. Um, because there's two phases. There's like the trial phase. And then after that, they kind of break up the death penalty cases into two, two separate cases. So you've got the trial and then he basically has another trial, but it's only relating to whether or not he should get the death penalty. Okay. And yeah. so for that, by, by that juncture, um, you know, he had not spoken to us at all. Mm-hmm. His folks were out of money, you know, and we had, we had like whatever we had made, we had long 
exhausted. Oh, I'm sure after three years or three, however long. Yeah, and having and to rent rent a like house, move right? Out there yeah, and like there's three lawyers like oh, not gosh, making yeah. any other. It was, it was, you know, we took a massive beating on that, and we're like, we just have to stop the bleeding. It and mm-hmm. at this point, he's not. You know, maybe he'll talk to new counsel. You know, because he yeah. really needs to kind of start. Like, if this is an act, he needs to stop it. If it's not, maybe somebody local can get him some kind of help, Mm -hmm. you know? So we end up bowing out and, you know, they, of course, sentence him to death. He he loses that, that portion of the trial as well. And then to be honest, man, I I followed it a bit, Mm -hmm. you know, but we, we've, we check sporadically to see like what's going on with his appellate process. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't appear that anyone filed any appeals on his behalf. And he had two slam dunk winners on appeal. Who, how does that process work? Is that something he would have to initiate on his own or does that, is that like mean, an automatic thing? The, no, theoretically. So yeah, what happens with the appeal is like within 30 days of final judgment, you have to file a notice of appeal in order to, to secure that. Like it's a, it's a hard line. Mm-hmm. Like if you miss that 30 days, boop, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Like your, your Forever. ability to appeal has disappeared, oh. vanished. Never to be gotten back. So, so in his state, though, he would never have been able to. Really see, the problem is, is that. if he was, yeah, if he wasn't talking to anybody, right? Like to say, hey, man, I need the appellate. Either like, cause could have been assigned the appellate defender. You know, that's kind of like the public defender, except for the appeals process. Could have easily have said, I, I need an appellate defender to file a notice of appeal on my behalf. But if he just sat there like a statue in his cell. And didn't do anything or say anything, which it appears is what happened. So, yeah. yeah. So basically, you know, one of the other things that happened before trial, like, and it was just like an unbelievable series of, of occurrences that I've just frankly, and I, I've watched much like I'm, I'm sure you, like you were saying, you grew up as a, you know, in your twenties, just kind of constantly watching you know, the date lines. Oh, yeah. And, uh, the the yep. ID and like just court shows and mm-hmm. things about true crime. And yeah, you know, you get this sense of what's going on with the process and how it kind of works. And then and then, you know, you get into a circumstance like this case and it's just like it was just so different than anything I'd ever seen. Like, like out of because like, I was the same way. I watched tons of that true crime doc type stuff mm-hmm. like Tons of like, and there's a ton of fascinating stuff. Like, is tons. that how you got into law? No, I, you know, my dad, <laughs> I know, you know yeah. like, I, I wouldn't say he forced me, but it, <laughs> it seemed like there was a strong urging, you yeah, know, without yeah. him saying it. So, yeah, um, yeah, you know, and it, it, it was just one of those things where I ended up, you know, like, in like looking back on that, that case, I just never. I've never heard of a case that had so many different things. Like I, I can't even remember what thing you asked me. About, you me <laughs> I'm like, about. what are you doing? Yeah, Sean Benet Ramsey. Oh, 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 yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I ended up doing um, one of the things that that was an issue for the second set of murders in the Brumbeck case was their timeline. Mm-hmm. And their timeline, they had really pigeonholed themselves into this. Um, you know, time between like four, maybe 420 and like 450 that the murder could have taken place of the Brumbecks on the, you know, the 2013 murders. So one of the things, one of the facts that I don't know that we've spoken about is that the, the bodies for the Brumbecks were not discovered, uh, not that day, not the Monday following, but the following day, which was Tuesday morning by two piano movers who had been scheduled to come and move their piano out of the house. They got up to the front door. They noticed the door was ajar. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the piano movers just kind of, you know, slightly taps on the door, you know, and says, hello, and looks down and he sees a dead man laying on the, in the foyer on the hall. Wow. So like, obviously the cops are called, the cops come over there, you know, within probably four hours of that, the medical examiner comes over and the medical examiner finds that Roger Brumbeck is still in, in, um, rigor mortis and rigor mortis. If you are to listen to any scientist that's credible in the world does not go past 24 hours and 24 hours is the kind of the max. Like you typically are out of rigor mortis long before 24 hours. So we are talking that this guy was in rigor mortis over 48 hours, like over 50 hours. Yeah, just like an absolutely 
scientifically impossible. Yeah. All right. Preposterous so idea. It, it really is. I mean, so that's a big deal to us that mm-hmm. basically, because the reason they were stuck in that timeline is because they had phone pings and video evidence and a clerk at a hotel in Des Moines where our client checked into at about 7, 7.15. So when you're looking at the pings from him leaving Omaha to him, you know, arriving in Des Moines and checking into the hotel, there was no other time. There was no extra time. It's like literally the, the amount of time that it took to drive, to make that drive straight through. And, and I did it multiple times to, to time it. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I was doing 80, like faster than the speed limit, it still always took like two and a half hours. That's right. just what it took. Yeah. So, and, and that's when he arrives in Des Moines. So like they, they had no other option. There is, they had no wiggle room. They were stuck into that window. And I now had science and a scientist who was, you know, we hired Werner Spitz, who's this world renowned, um, forensic pathologist who was going to testify that he couldn't have been in rigor. Like he, he could be, in, he could be in rigor mortis, but he wasn't killed on Sunday afternoon. Like that's a fact. Like he just, like science does not allow for it. Like he, he would have had to have been frozen. Is it rigor? Or Riger. It's Riger. Thank you. It actually is. Did, did I tell you that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I learned that in that case. Like, he's like, oh, everyone mispronounces Riger Mortis. So, yeah, that was um, a great accent. Thanks. Um, yeah. So it, it was crazy. So I, I get this world renowned expert. Like, I mean, this guy is like the cream. Just look up his name. Like, he, he's on, he's been on every major case in the last 30 years. And, Probably about 10 days before trial, this Joan Benet Ramsey uh, special, I think it was on CBS airs and it was like a, it was either like two nights, it was like a two night spectacular, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically what they were doing is they put together a panel of experts of all mm-hmm. different types of, you know, in the, in the kind of the, the criminology realm. One of the experts having to be our expert, Werner Spitz. Mm-hmm. And he proceeds during the course of this show, uh, to unequivocally state that after his detailed investigation into this case, the Joan Benet Ramsey case, that he has come to the conclusion that her brother had caved her skull in with a blunt object, which he, I forget if it was a lamp. It was oh. like something like, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it fit. He like showed how it fit directly into the wound that she had. Oh, wow. Head. So he unequivocally says that, you know, that the brother had killed Joan Benet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. So an so, accident or I mean, I mean that, I, I that think, can't be an accident. Well, he, he, he certainly didn't. His intent wasn't if it was, in fact, him. I don't think that he intended to kill his sister. Yeah. I think they were being the small children and he mm-hmm. probably hit her in the head with something and did way more damage than he intended. Like if if that's how that went down, I could see how the family would be freaking out. Mm-hmm. You know, oh my God, our daughter's dead. Now they're going to take our son to, you know, wherever they're going to do something with kids that kill other kids. I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, it would have been, it would have been a tough situation to be in. But for our purposes, what happens is that Joan Benet Ramsey's brother, uh, completely disagrees with him. <laughs> with our expert Werner Spitz uh-huh. and sues him for $200 million wow. for libel, slander, right. you know, defamation of care, you know, everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. So this is like, again, 10 days before our guy's supposed to go on and, and oh. like with this mind blowing testimony that our guy couldn't have killed the Brumbecks because of the condition of the body, that the, the timeline's wrong. Our guy was out of the state. Everyone right. knows that the state's own evidence proves he was out of the state yeah. at the time that it would have had to have occurred. And so basically what happens is that the um, judge during war- this fight about whether or not Spitz is going to be able to be questioned by the state as to what he said on this Joan Benet Ramsey case, like in our case, which his lawyer from New York, Spitz's lawyer from New York says, I can't have him testifying to any of that. He's being sued for $200 million. Mm-hmm. I can't have him testifying to any of that because that's under oath. It's admissible in, in any trial. It's like, I can't allow. So we end up losing <sighs> our star, like our mega star witness as to the science. Setback part of it. number 357. Yeah, it was, it was just like <laughs> gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so yeah, at the end of the day, you know, he, he supplies us with another guy who's not him. 
yeah. doesn't have the star power that this guy has. And right. Like, you know, that would have had an effect on the jury. You know, they'd have been like, oh, right. he was, he did the Warren commission. He did the autopsy for Kennedy. You know, I mean, the guy had street cred. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he was, he was that guy. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that was just like, it, it was, yeah, just another gut punch. And, yeah. you know, I, I just wanted to bring that little Jean Benet Ramsey. Um, tie in in yeah. there because everyone's interested in that case. What yeah, do you I, think? Who who do you think did that? I don't know. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna take that on. I think I'm gonna take you that think? case on. Yeah. Oh. I think I'm gonna crack it. I really do. I think I'm gonna crack it. Maybe I'll let you crack it. Like with me. season three. Yeah, season three. I mean, somebody's got to be able to crack that. Like to be honest with you, I like the parents. Oh, I don't. I don't think so. I don't buy any of the no. other bullshit, like the, you know, like any of this, like what, there's so many theories and none of them make any sense. So a lot which of, the, which theory do you like? Well, which one do you subscribe to? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it was the parents or the Why? brother. They seemed so loving and distraught. And what just, makes you say that? Like, they were just like whatever she was limited. Di- Pat, is it Patsy? Pat? Yeah, Pat. Pat? Patty? Patty. Is it Patty? I think it might be Patsy. Patsy. I don't know. Patsy. Patsy Cl- Ramsey. Patsy Ramsey. <laughs> How Pat- do I not? I yeah. Um, she was just destroyed. She loved that little girl so much. And I just could, I just don't. I mean, that's not a good reason. I just don't. Well, yeah. Don't, don't, um, confuse the, like, I don't necessarily think it was the parents. Like, I kind of. You think though they knew or something? Yeah. I, I think it was more from the parents' perspective. Like, I, like, I don't buy into the theory that the dad was like, you know, molesting his kid. Oh, I don't think, think so I, either. I don't think that's Mm-mm. a thing. But um, like the brother maybe accidentally doing it. Well, he did do that interview on TV a few years back. I think it was with Dr. Phil. And I don't want to get sued either for $200 million. Yeah, for real. <laughs> but it, it was pretty creepy. He had this weird smile plastered on his face the whole time. And he's been through a lot of shit, too. I don't know. But it was... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've heard all the theories and like the only one that kind of stuck was that one with me. Like just. What about the Santa guy? Yeah. I mean, why? What's his motive? I don't know. What? He's a creepy Santa guy. Yeah, but what's that's not a motive being a creepy Santa guy. You know, I I mean, like what? That's the only kid that he killed. Like it's. it's, I don't know. I don't know. Just, it was just, yeah. I like everything know. about like the, the break in looks staged. I don't think it looks staged. Oh yeah, it did. Totally well, you know staged. more than. Well, I mean, in, in terms of when you kind of look at the logistics on how it would have had to have been done, you know, I mean, it, it's not like impossible for them to make it look like it was like it actually happened, you know, but it's like everything that happened after that, you know, cause it's just like the, the, the position that the body was found in. True. You know, there was just a lot With of the blanket. Yeah, there um, was a lot of weird things. The letter just, is weird. That weird. whole letter thing is crazy. Now, I, there was something I saw recently that I did not kind of follow up on. And I know that there was like a handwriting analysis because there, you know, when they were kind of like looking at the, the parents, you know, there was, cause there was, that was definitely a theory, you know. The, oh, absolutely. The, the folks. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know what the result of that handwriting expert was. Do you, did you ever run into that? Or, no, I guess know? we need to do a deep dive. Yeah, deep dive. <laughs> I'm telling you, like that case needs to be cracked because that, that just seems like one that, like, I don't even know. Did they find DNA? Like, was I don't there, think, I don't think there was any, but how, I'm just, how was that? Ass. Like, I don't like know. if Darren would have been sitting here, he would immediately said it was the parents, like for the exact same reason with the Hunter thing, you know, mm-hmm. like, there's no foreign DNA, mm-hmm. like when this little girl's murdered. I don't know. That's I can't quote that case because I haven't researched it yet. Enough, I, I really haven't either. I mean, I am yeah, doing like, it in December. I'm doing that for my live show at the brewery where I do shows second cool. Thursday of every month. I'm gonna, be a good we're one. doing Jean Benet because it happened around Christmas. And yeah, stuff, you know? no, that'll be a good one. Fun little Christmas I, well, story. I hope you crack it. I hope you crack it before, you know, well, before I crack it. I have a question for you. If there was one case you could solve today, any case, like a whodunit, what would that case be? Which one would you want to know? Like out of any kind of any, case? Any murder case, mm. any unsolved case, any cold case, like what would be, what's the one? The one that I have always, always wanted to know 
Like, because I, when the movie JFK by Oliver Stone came out. Oh, yeah. That was so convincing to me that, that he was not like a lone operator. Totally. Yeah. You know, that would be the one that I'd want to know, you know? <laughs> that's a good one. That wasn't even one I would have thought of. Yeah. But like, that's, that's the one that it's one. always like really bugged me, you know? Lots I just, of conspiracy. Oh, things. and it's, and it's so deep. I know. You know, there's oh, it goes so, so deep. many layers yeah. to that. It, it, yeah. it just so many governmental type uh-huh. conspiracies that was, would have to be involved. Was with there that. some link to MK ultra in that one or no? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I, I thought there was, I mean, like Maybe. I, like the big thing in, in Oliver Stone's doc, you know, was, was the Cuban angle, you know, that like they did not like the way that Cuba was being handled by JFK and, you know, that we had Cuban sympathizers and, you know, and like, cause the whole thing with Jack Ruby was just crazy, mm-hmm. you know, like that whole, that thing was like, cause we're talking about the president. Yeah. You know, like that's. And what a president he was. I mean, yeah, he was, he, you know. No, he, he was a wreck. He was dumpster fire, really. His he, personal life was. Yeah, I mean, he had some, you know, I mean, he was a, he was a relatively good looking guy. You know, he had a lot of power. Is it, isn't he the first one who wore makeup on, on stage? Cause I don't was, know. It, it, it was, so. it, it was, I think that was the thing, but I think it was Nixon's lack of makeup. Oh, right, right, what, right. You know, it yeah. made him look super sweaty and yeah. <laughs> Maybe in comparison to like in the debates, in comparison to to Kennedy. He was. The hat. So was that the, so I've often had this conversation about the death of the fedora. Oh, that. Okay. Yeah. Hats. Well, he had some damn good hair, really. So why cover that shit? That's what I'm saying. American like haberdashery. I, I, I actually, there, there was one point in my life where I actually wanted to really dig into like why that. Or you wanted to bring back the hat look. Well, I wanted to know why the hat disappeared. Like it seemed like overnight to me. It's because of JFK. That's crazy. Cause you, like if you look at any pictures like pre JFK, like any, you know, like crowd pictures, like every man had a hat on. Every man. Jackie O rocked some hats. Yeah. She, you know, she was the, the original like kind of baller first lady, you know, yeah. like super glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. This is so cliche for me to even bring up, but innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. T- tell me your thoughts on that statement as a criminal defense lawyer. Well, there is ev- no such thing in it, my well, opinion. Yeah. After 20 years of doing this, um, unfortunately, I think that the reality is, is that's not the way it is. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never walked into a court of law in preparation for trial feeling like I didn't have to win proving that my guy right. was innocent. It's really. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I, you know, until it is proven innocent because it, like the theory is obviously supposed to be, I don't have to put on any defense. Right. Like, it's entirely their burden. I have no burden. I don't have to put a witness on. I don't right. do anything. It's like, there's this assumption that there's always two sides to a trial, but that's just not, it's the, not case. the case. And then like Anthony Garcia sat in solitary for three years before yeah. he was even convicted. Was it, I mean, even before the trial had started. Totally. That, and I mean, that's a perfect example of your question. Like I a hundred percent felt like we had to prove that he was innocent. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't like, like we had to prove that he didn't do it, mm-hmm. you know, cause they all considered that he had done it. Like that was like, you know, cause picking that jury was unbelievable. It, mm-hmm. it took forever to try to like maybe find 12 people that hadn't already formed an opinion, mm-hmm. which, you know, when people like in a case like that want to be on the jury. You know, so you had those people that just wanted to get on that jury. Yeah. You know, and like us trying to figure out who they were when we were picking a jury was tough, mm-hmm. you know, and like, yeah, it was, that whole case was frustrating. Can jurors take their story, their personal story and write a book or sell their rights or anything? Like if it was a high profile case like that, can they, Yeah. they, they just can do whatever. So totally. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That was like the, one of the greatest juror interviews that I've ever seen was exactly from that case. Like it was, you know, it was one of the, uh, the black women jurors had like literally sat there and just disclosed what, you know, like those of us that watched it carefully kind of knew, you know, cause Rodney King, that had happened before OJ and those cops had gone to trial before OJ's verdict. 
And if you'll remember, Rodney King was the the poor black guy that got the shit. You know, he got his ass beat on the side of the highway, and like it was really the birth of people filming cops. Was, yeah, was that that particular like that finally started to shed light what black people have been trying to convince the entire world was mm-hmm. going on in their interactions with police, not occasionally, but every single minute of every single day mm-hmm. of their lives. That was finally caught on tape. And, you know, so everyone was outraged and those five cops went in there and they were all acquitted. Mm -hmm. So when that interview with that, that juror, she said with, you know, without hesitation, she's like, that was an eye for an eye. She's like, she's like, we acquitted OJ because of what happened on, you know, the, the, the trial for the five cops. And, you know, it's like, it was, we'd had enough. You know, it was like, that was our opportunity to, to, you know what, say enough is enough. You know, it's like, y'all think he's guilty. Well, we're going to let him walk. You see how it feels? You like the way, you like the way that feels? Yeah. So it was like, she was brilliant. Like, and I, I don't blame her and I don't blame any person on that jury that voted that way for feeling that way. You know, was the Anthony Garcia case, the toughest case you've ever worked on? It was like, after it was over, I needed like six months to recuperate mentally Mm -hmm. from that. I I was like, so mentally exhausted from like, I mean, just the closing argument alone was like a 15 round heavyweight fight, like mentally, Mm -hmm. you know, I I was just like, you know, cause you always walk out of those, like, especially like in a case with, you know, that much at stake just feeling like, God, I missed so much shit I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like you, there's never been a closing where I've done it where I'm like, nailed it, got every yeah. single thing that I wanted to say. You know, it's like that. Because you don't read from index cards. No, I, right? like, I am not a reader. You no. know, like I know my shit. I know the facts of the case and I'm just up there rolling with it. I mean, I'll have bullet points, you know, because especially in a case like that, because there's so many things that I want to hit, you know, but you're trying to not bore the shit out of the jury. Right. Cause you can hear me. Like I can talk forever. You know what I mean? It's no, it's no different in front of a jury. No wonder you have a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean that, that was, that was definitely the toughest case that I've ever, Um, ever handled and probably ever would, you know, I mean, it was, it was grueling in so many different ways. And it, it was like so fascinating though. Like really from the, like if you're into, kind of the legal procedure side of things, that case it's unparalleled. Really, I like I'd put it up against any other case procedurally with just the amount of maneuvering and rigmarole that went on with it and just the uh it was it was unbelievable. Have you ever worked on a case where you have actually had to fire your client? I well, I mean kind of the way it works in that situation is if the relationship between the attorney and the client devolves Mm -hmm. to the point where you cannot work together, Mm -hmm. whether it be, you know, it's a clash of ideas Mm -hmm. or, you know, you simply just can't get along or your client's threatening you, Mm -hmm. you know, or it's, I mean, yeah, I, I, I try my damnedest not to step away from my clients. I try to, I try to power through because it really does put them at a a huge disadvantage Mm -hmm. if I've fought a case and like on the eve of trial. And, and typically, you know, if I go into a judge and I say the attorney client relationship has been broken past any kind of repair, it's kind of choice based on, you know, my representation as an officer of the court that, we're not able to work together, mm-hmm. you know, therefore I'm not going to be able to provide them competent, you know, yeah. counsel at trial. It's like judge kind of has no choice, you uh-huh. know, but, but that is such a huge like a disadvantage for him because they're basically going back to ground zero. Like he's got a new lawyer that's going to have to learn all the facts of the case, you know, so yeah. I really try to stick it out, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's hard sometimes. Yeah. Have you ever had like a really terrible murder case or like defended someone who was accused of something really? Yeah. I mean, I've had, you know, like the cases that are the hardest and the worst to handle are like criminal sexual abuse cases involving children. Mm-hmm. Those are, mm-hmm. I abhor them. They're horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, like those, like they're far worse than murders, mm-hmm. you know, cause that victim's living. Yeah. You know, and they're going to have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And mm-hmm. I think that there's been enough done in terms of studies to know that that really fucks with people 
permanently. You know, that's not just oh, something yeah. that you you kind of get over. Um, I mean, it's always there lingering. Kind of PTSD inducing anyone who has to deal with that in law enforcement or 911 dispatchers. Oh, God, it's, it's the worst. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it's like, and it's even worse when it's like a close relative to me. You know, it's such a breach of trust. Mm-hmm. That it's like so, oh, like right. those are the hardest cases for me to handle morality wise, mm-hmm. you know, like it's just they're, you know, I mean, murders are obviously terrible because of the loss of life. But to me, like I said, just because of the longevity and the fact that that exists in that person's psyche forever, it's, um, those are really tough mm-hmm. for me to handle, you know, cause it's like, I've handled all kinds of cases. I've handled, you know, like we've got another murder case coming up with, um, a kid who, Another knife fight, you know, another another big, like, big knife fight involving a bunch of kids. And, you know, we think our kid didn't do it, like, you know, but he's the one that's sitting in jail, um, you know, accused of murdering this other kid. You know, so that's going to be a tough one. But, you know, it's like, yeah, to me, the, the, the hardest, absolute toughest cases to handle are those those. Yeah, I could see that. Criminal sexual abuse cases. Have you ever had a situation where you've had to worry about your personal safety or that of your family because of people who were testifying in a case or who maybe you felt like had a vendetta against you for some reason, something with a trial or anything like that? I mean, mostly just the podcast. We're kind of worried about the whole Mike Rossi thing. Oddly enough, if Anthony, who's in, and he's been convicted at this point, but it, I had the feeling that, and it, and it was based on everything that happened, like kind of leading up all that time that it took to get to the trial and how much I know that Anthony Garcia wanted to get to trial, that I, I had this like fear that if I got him acquitted, that I was going to be the next door that he showed up at. But that's how I like, and it was weird because that makes you sound like you. <laughs> tried yeah, not to get him. No, so, but I, I no, I fought so hard. Know, but it was I like, know. you know, it was that thing where like, if he did do it, you know, like I, I would be, and I get him acquitted if he did do it, you know, despite like me fighting, thinking he didn't do it. But if he did do it mm-hmm. and I get him off, I'm fucking dead. <laughs> because um, like that's the kind of slight like me drag, like dragging him through three and a half years of that torture. Like mm-hmm. he would have blamed us for him being in solitary for three and a half years. Oh, it was like, yeah, he was a guy who just blamed everyone else for all the shit that he did. You know, if, if, if he was that guy, you know, it was kind of that if he did it type thing. It wasn't necessarily I said, yeah, that I thought. It's not like, like I'm saying, Oh, like if I would have acquitted him, he definitely. Yeah, he yeah. probably would have gotten the wrong person. I, he would have gone yeah. for you, but gotten your well, neighbor or something. I would have liked to think that I would have beat that ass. Ooh. If he would have showed up at the door, I would have just fucking beat that ass. I don't know, because I would have known what his game was. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. There's no surprising me. As soon as they saw his ass, I'd be like, whoop. Well, it's been so great talking to you. I could talk to you for hours more. I have so many questions. Really? Because I'm so fucking long-winded. That's you are. Amazing. I know. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, I, you meander around the topics and I might have more questions for you later. But I do want to talk to you soon about a case that I've worked on and done a few episodes on. Isaiah Sweet, who killed his legal guardians when he was 17. So I hope we get a chance to do that. Yeah, soon. that would be awesome. Like, I uh, I listened to your episodes on those. So yeah, I don't think he had a great legal team, to be honest. Right. Yeah. So sounds like he didn't have a defense at all. Is like the problem. It sounds <laughs> like there's a lot of problems. Yeah. But yeah. So I'd like to talk to you about that. Well, Get I'd like thoughts. to answer your questions about that. Yeah, we'll That'd do be cool. that. Yeah. Right. Anyway, everybody needs to listen to Bob's podcast, Defense Diaries, if you haven't yet. And everyone needs to listen to Kelly's True Crime. IRL. <laughs> In real life. In real life, that's what the cool kids say. That is what the cool kids um. say. And that's a wrap, folks. This has been the fifth and final episode in the True Crime IRL Defense Diaries crossover. I'll be putting all of our episodes on YouTube as well, along with lots of photos. And if you thought the Anthony Garcia case was interesting, and if you want to hear even more from the mouth of Garcia's lawyer, Bob Mata, you're in luck because season two of the Defense Diaries podcast steps away 
away from serial killer John Wayne Gacy and right into all things Anthony Garcia. Bob Mata has a crazy story to tell you about that case, so stay tuned for that. I also need to thank executive producer of the show, Darren Wood, for all your help while we worked on this series together. You're incredibly talented, Darren, and I had a great time hanging out with you and Bob on this project. This is Kelly Barron's Brink from True Crime IRL reminding you to lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. We are part of That's Not Canon Network and TNC Productions in Brisbane, Australia. For more information, go to truecrimeirl.com. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. Thank you. Thank you.